Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Radzeski, here with Greg Baer. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Dr. Temple Lovelace, founder and director of Assessment for Good. Funded by the Advanced Education Research and Development Fund, Assessment for Good works to transform the systems and structures necessary for culturally affirming assessment of Black and Latino students and their social, emotional, and learning development. Prior to founding Assessment for Good, she directed the special education program at Duquesne University right here in Pittsburgh. Dr. Lovelace, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So as an educator and a researcher, you have long been an advocate for race, class, and ability equity in schools. And at least for me, when I was in the classroom, now granted this was 10 years ago, when I heard about equity, assessment wasn't always the first thing that I heard about. Of course, we talked about things like bias and standardized tests, but it seemed that more often assessment was the tool by which we measured inequity rather than a driver of inequity itself. So can you tell us about the path that led you to found Assessment for Good? What were the needs you were seeing? I guess I'm curious about how assessment became important to you as an educator and as an advocate. When I think about the foundation for Assessment for Good, it started before I even knew there needed to be a widespread movement for justice in the ways that we measure student progress. As an educator and later as a researcher, I was always perplexed by how conspicuous we made certain instructional, social, or emotional supports for learners. It almost seemed like the greater their needs, the larger the support, and the more space that that support took up in the classroom. It also appeared to be vastly different in the form that it appeared in, in comparison to the work of other learners. And, you know, as a grad student, my first study focused on ways to use Palm Pilots to take data in a more discreet manner. And I know I'm dating myself and I'm talking <laughs> about Palm Pilots and like legacy technology, but it was at that point that I knew that technology was going to be a key player in allowing young people to be in general education spaces or in their communities and have what they needed to access that environment. And I followed that up with my dissertation, which focused not only on automating assessment, but investigating how we could introduce and then test multiple skills at the same time, thereby increasing the time that a student would have in the general education environment. How this transition to assessment is I knew we had to have a clear way of understanding their needs. And when we understood what their needs were, we could build better solutions that would allow them to experience all they can from the current environments in which they live, in which they learn. Dr. Lovelace, Assessment for Good focuses on learners aged 8 to 13, with a special focus on Black and Latinx students. So why years 8 through 13? What's happening at that age developmentally, socially, academically, that makes your work particularly important? When I was conceptualizing Assessment for Good, I wanted to start from scratch in my understanding on what was occurring during the full K to 8 developmental period. I had been a student You know, I had taught other students, but I felt like I needed to scrub what I knew and learn what was out there that was critical and important for the K-8 developmental period. What I knew is that I could approach this from one of two ways. I could think about ways in which to prevent certain things or ways I needed to remediate certain things. 
And I noticed that for historically marginalized learners, especially those with disabilities, the bulk of their instruction was occurring from a remediation point of view. AFG needed to be oriented towards prevention and that we could only be successful if we had a deep understanding from an intersectional perspective about what was occurring across multiple domains for our youngest learners. And so I explored national data on when disability diagnoses occur. I started to look at our priority areas for early and middle grade math, writing, reading, and then I layered on what we know about the development of ethnic and racial identity for students ages 8 to 13. And once I did that, what emerged was this nice sweet spot where we could provide a great deal of support during one of their most large transitions from late elementary to early middle school. We know that during that time, students often get a disability diagnosis. We also know that that is when they start to lose interest in math and science. And we know that all of this occurs with greater frequency for Black, Latinx, and Indigenous populations. And so when I began to look at this sweet spot, I knew that that's where we needed to be ages 8 to 13, having a special focus on these two priority populations and understanding that if we hit that just right, we could impact development in academic, social, and emotional domains. So you've set out to improve outcomes for students with and without disabilities through what you call inclusive R&D, inclusive research and development. And you write about developing a responsive and accessible system of asset-based assessment. Can you tell us more about asset-based assessment? I think so often when we think about tests, we think about things that judge us, that show us what we're missing. All that we're doing is we're looking at, from a skills-based perspective, what emerging skills are there that we can use as a springboard to also bring along less developed skill areas or new developed skill areas. Some of us may also know that as a strengths-based approach. Now, the other side of that, we know that there are rich cultural aspects that a learner brings into the classroom on a daily basis. And so those assets have to be a foundational part of the instruction and intervention that we create. And so we think about what it might measure. We want to look at it from not only the perspective of skills, but also who that young person is the multiple dimensions of their identity. And when we as educators have a real clear understanding of who they are, we can then build new exciting ways for learners to interact with each other, interact with us. But we're looking at what they bring, not what they don't have. It sounds like in many ways, this asset-based assessment is a tool for more personalized learning. I think that we can get more individualized. Mm. Think about... Who is that human that's standing in front of me? And not only who is that human that's standing in front of me, but what are the ways I think about who they are? How might that impact what I design for them? And so it allows us to take a moment. Think about, of course, it's not just one, right? It's often 15 or 20 that we're thinking about when we're in a classroom environment. What do they have? What are the goals and dreams I have for them while they're with me in this educational space? And then how do I create rich, deep instruction, social opportunities, opportunities for emotional development for them so that we all grow together? And that's essentially what we're trying to support. This is Greg Baer along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Dr. Temple Lovelace, founder and director of Assessment for Good. What you've just described, Dr. Lovelace, 
really sounds like the work of understanding the story of each and every young person in front of us. And you've begun to talk with educators about assessment and about their ideas, their hopes, the potential they see in alternative forms of assessment. So can you give us some examples of how asset-based assessment might be used in an actual classroom? What might a teacher equipped with strength-based data decide to do differently in ways that help each student feel welcome, feel safe, feel seen in that classroom setting? One of the things that I think it's important to do is to first start with what is our understanding of assessment? I define assessment as information gathering. And so what educators have already told us and what they still may realize is that they're actually already doing it. When an educator thinks about that young person, so I know that this young person knows how to do this. How do I leverage this into that? They're doing what we're looking for, this asset-based approach. And so what they might then do is ask specific questions of that student. For us, it's not about pencil and paper. For us, it's about ways that we probe for information throughout the school day across lots of different school activities to learn more about that student so that when I know that information, I can then feed it back into the decisions that I want to make. It might look like having a set of questions at the end of a unit that I just taught right? Or having a specific center that students will visit and it'll have them answer certain things or explore things in a different way. And then I use that information to change what I might do as soon as that afternoon or the next day. As an educator, when I'm equipped with strengths-based data, I'm doing something for myself, but I'm also doing something for that student. That student walks in knowing that they have mastery in a certain place, and that can catapult them into other areas of knowing. They can help students. It helps our peer-to-peer interactions as well. For the educator, it changes my approach. It changes how I look at that student. It changes how I teach. We're not always focused on what that student doesn't know how to do. And so when I think about the strengths that are across all of my students, how might I pair students differently for different types of exploratory learning? It's about the interactions that occur in a classroom on a minute-by-minute basis. How do we make those more rich? And Dr. Lovelace, you surfaced the wisdom of our teachers, the reality that they are gathering information all the time about their students. And so you're really asking them to probe and ask questions in the right ways, in developmentally appropriate ways that help them surface the stories of their students. Although certainly not true in all cases, pre-service teacher candidates aren't trained deeply in child development theory and practices. They're not trained deeply in storytelling practices. So are you finding a level of comfort among teachers as you're asking them to think about assessment as you describe it differently? Absolutely. What we found up to this point is that teachers are excited that we're asking the question. They're excited that we are paying attention to the fact that they're doing lots of different assessment practices in the classroom simply because they wanna know this information about their students. What happens is we're not quite sure what to do with that information. And so our hope is that we step in with solutions that allow them to organize that information so that it could be in usable formats for reporting back to students, reporting back to teachers reporting to parents and guardians, 
We also are really excited about the ways in which teachers are coming up with ideas that are blowing my mind in ways in which assessment can live as a natural part of the instructional experience. The problem with the word assessment at this point is that it's been used in ways that have been hurtful to not only teachers, but also to students. For us, we wanna reimagine what assessment is. We wanna transform how we're using it because there's lots of useful information such as stories. What stories do we know about students that can follow them from year to year to year? What are the ways in which they can talk about who they are and add to that story? Whether it's their academic story, their story as a math learner, their story as a reader. What are the ways in which we can provide tools to allow that process to happen in a more quick way, a way that allows for others to add to that story? That's our goal for assessment for good. Dr. Lovelace, along those lines of recognizing students' strengths and recognizing their stories, how are educators making assessments more culturally affirming? In other words, how are they making assessments a tool for positive social and emotional growth rather than one that excludes or makes kids feel less than or makes kids feel judged? Well, what we've seen up to this point has been promising. Educators, they have to do certain types of assessment activities because of how we've created schooling up to this point. What we're seeing that's exciting is how they are layering on more culturally affirming assessment so that they are able to make decisions with lots of information in front of them. When they're sitting down and figuring out ways in which to determine, does this student have a disability? We may have some traditional tools that have been used, but then they are taking anecdotal notes differently. They are bringing other information, qualitative data to the table so they can more fully understand the story of that student and then make decisions. And so for us, we wanna make sure that for those subjective disability categories, I'm talking about things like emotional behavior disorders, disorders that really may actually not be a disorder, but are really the reflection of what is going on in that student's life. And so when we have more information from which to draw, we actually may find out that if we have a more supportive environment in the classroom and wraparound services, we can really support that student's development to help them get to the next stage that they need to instead of making a decision that they may have to live with for the rest of their life. For all of the good work happening in and out of school, all across this country, we know that systems change is not guaranteed. You're talking about something so fundamentally revolutionary, Dr. Lovelace. So what's next for Assessment for Good? What do you hope to accomplish in the coming year and beyond? We are at the point in our program where we have heard from people around ideas that they need support for, tangible resources. We are also at the point in our program where we are hearing ideas from people of things that they're already doing. And so for the next year, we want to synthesize that information so that we can decide what's next for AFG. One thing about Assessment for Good is that we're a generative program. Our hope is to employ assessment even in our own creation and how we maintain the program. And so we hope to move with what the community wants us to move through. We hope to be displaying our 
early wins, right? Disseminating that information with our community. We also hope to be gearing up for our larger prototype awards. We hope to be celebrating what we've already learned about great asset-based assessment. We hope to be supporting young people through our youth council. That way they are telling us, are we on the right track? We also hope to be a community so that people can come and join us on this journey towards understanding how we can have better assessment practice for students aged 8 to 13. Dr. Lovelace, how can people find out more about the work you're doing? There's a couple different ways. The first is that we are on social media. And so following us on Twitter at assessment, the number four good is a great way to connect with us. We also have a webpage, www.aerdf forward slash AFG. Each of those ways you can connect with us and become a part of our community. Before we let you go, just one more question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? We are at a critical moment right now where our voices need to be heard. I answer that question as a parent, and I also answer that question as an educator. So the one thing that I would hope that parent or educator would do is to link up. Let's begin talking. Let's begin thinking differently about the ways that we can do education for a better tomorrow. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning, a Pittsburgh-based network of people and organizations that ignite engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. Learn more at remakelearning.org tomorrow.